Hello and welcome. This is Ukraine World Podcast, a podcast of the initiative Ukraine World uh, that is aimed at uh, communicating Ukrainian events to to the wider world. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian journalist. And today we have in the studio David Stulik, who is the press and information officer of the delegation of the European Union to Ukraine, a diplomatic institution. And we are going to talk about EU-Ukraine relations. David, hello. Hello, everybody, and thank you for inviting me. Thanks to so studio. much for joining us. My first question, well, uh, you're in Ukraine for about 10 years, and uh, my experience is that today the EU involvement in in Ukraine is much bigger and much wider than, say, five or 10 years ago. Do you agree with that? Uh, absolutely, this is true. And a lot of things uh, have changed uh, after the Revolution of Dignity in 2014. Uh, before that, the EU was rather perceiving Ukraine as one of, let's say, few partner countries, uh, especially in the East. Uh, after the Revolution of Dignity, this has changed and the, the pro-European, pro-democratic uh, changes in your country uh, gave also a new impetus to the neighborhood policy of the, of the EU or in this part of the world. And we have changed our approach and our focus. Before, we were focusing on the assistance with, let's say, Uh, certain areas with uh, certain small-scale projects. Right now, the EU approach is more strategic. It's uh, more elaborated. Uh, we are identifying the key sectors and key areas uh, that need our assistance, and not only financial assistance, but mainly the technical expertise, uh, expert knowledge. Uh, and this is something that uh, the EU is now sharing with Ukraine in a more, I would say, uh, complex and strategic way. Yeah, what is surprising to me is that basically I, I cannot say that there is any field in which the EU is not involved, because if, if we take energy EU is there, if you take public administration, EU is there, if you take judicial reform, uh, anti-corruption reform, uh, uh, and other fields. So do you mean that that uh, basically EU is trying to assist in every every kind of sphere? And you know why it is that? Uh, it's because of the association agreement, because that's an agreement that regulates almost every aspect of your life. That's the agreement that provides the roadmap for all these changes. And that's a kind of, I would say, uh, a recipe for Ukraine to be successful, because through this agreement, we are sharing with Ukraine our so-called aki communitaire, our legislation, which concerns now almost every field of life of, of the EU citizens. And as a result, we will have uh, Ukraine to be a part of the EU market or economic market uh, and be politically associated with the EU. So that means that Ukraine would very much resemble uh, the countries like Norway or Switzerland. And uh, these countries are almost uh, looking the same way as the EU. And that means that the same process or the same perspective is there also for Ukraine. And that's why all these changes are uh, uh, present or can be uh, witnessed and our, uh, let's say, assistance and our presence there can be visible almost in every aspect of your life in any sector you can think of. But we understand that Ukraine is not kind of a society that Czech Republic, your country, was in late 80s or Poland was in late 80s because now Ukraine is much more oligarchic economy, right? Because during the 90s and 2000, the oligarchs basically captured all the key spheres and including the public administration and, and authorities, etc. 
Do you feel that there is this uh, kind of oppression, or I would I would say not oppression, but uh, obstacles to uh, opening up Ukraine, obstacles from these oligarchy groups? I think indeed Ukraine uh, has lost a lot of time. Even the speed of current reforms is not so high as the speed of reforms in other central and some few post-communist countries like from Baltic states. This is true. Plus also the uh, geopolitical window of opportunity is uh, not so widely opened as it was in the 90s. Uh, uh, in your case, you are uh, facing open uh, Russian aggression, which is, of course, uh, slowing down all these processes. It's absorbing a lot of resources, not only financial resources, but also human resources. And this is something that uh, the Central European countries didn't have to face. So that's a really, I would say, a big challenge for, for Ukraine. But again, comparing Ukraine with uh, herself back in the 90s, the speed of reforms uh, from this perspective, dynamic perspective, is absolutely uh, fantastic. It's really a big progress compared to the imitated reforms back in the 90s. We do not, of course, say that everything is going well with these reforms nowadays. Uh, sometimes we also face this phenomenon that there is uh, sometimes more imitation than implementation of reforms. But compared to 90s, uh, the, the speed of the reforms and the depth of the reforms is uh, really uh, is really visible. But of course, compared to other countries that went through the similar processes, Ukraine is still unfortunately lagging behind. Do you think that Ukraine can still inspire Europe? Definitely. Definitely it can inspire Europe uh, through the so many times used concept of values, shared, common shared values, uh, because Ukrainians are showing to other Europeans that these values are not an, an abstract uh, definitional term, that, that it is something for which they are ready to fight for. Uh, many of, of them have lost lives in this battle. So this is somehow inspiring also Europeans who are gradually facing the similar phenomena and patterns of like the rise of populist, uh, rise of uh, aggressive uh, Russian propaganda, uh, growing uh, growing strength of, let's say, uh, populists and uh, um, uh, uh, different uh, people with many phobia. So this is something that uh, Europeans are now discovering that uh, these values were not given for free. They are not given as granted and that you have to fight for them. So this is something that Ukraine has uh, or could uh, export uh, to other European countries and even to some of the neighbor countries. Let's talk about successes and failures of Ukraine's EU integration. Let's first talk about successes. Can you name like three major success stories of Ukraine since 2014 uh, in the EU integration track? Um, I would say like one of the major successes was the re reduction of the space for corruption. Uh, here I mean, for example, public procurement. Here I mean uh, ongoing restructurization of the Ukrainian energy companies, namely Naftohas. Uh, these are the things that help to reduce the space for corruption, uh, to save a lot of, uh, let's say, public uh, financial means. The other thing that also was done rather successfully and promptly was the restructuring of the banking sector. 
again, um, an area or a sector where a lot of uh, opportunities for various corruption schemes uh, were present. So now, thanks to the uh, diligent management done by the National Bank, uh, this has been largely eliminated. Here, one can also mention the nationalization of uh, many large private banks owned by oligarchs. That's something that was absolutely brave and uh, involved uh, many risks. But the Ukrainian authorities managed uh, this, these processes quite well. So these would be like the three areas which I would just name, which just come to my mind. Let's talk about failures, so unsuccesses. What would you name? The first and the most important failure is the fight against corruption. This is something that really keeps uh, uh, the international community uh, very disappointed with. Uh, that's the area which is basically blocking uh, the Ukrainian full potential to be fully used. That's the kind of a break that is uh, slowing down the progress of many other reforms. So that's an uh, area which we are constantly pointing to whenever the, we are discussing uh, issues like the setup of the anti-corruption court, uh, providing the new, uh, newly established anti-corruption institutions with all needed means and competencies, uh, when it comes, for example, also to the uh, very strange obligation uh, of the anti-corruption activists to report their assets like these uh, public officials do. So these are that these are the phenomenons uh, that we are criticizing and we are concerned with. And of course, we perfectly understand what is behind that. Uh, these are this is the kind of a, a domain of those forces which do not want to see Ukraine to be a transparent, modern, efficient country. They want to see Ukraine as a country where the murky deals between few people who control most of the GDP in the country uh, want to keep this country in such a state. So that's the, that's the major failure of Ukraine so far. Let's talk about trade. On the one hand, we see that uh, Ukrainian exports to the EU are growing very rapidly, 30% last year, which is which is enormous figure. But on the other hand, and this is the effect of the association agreement and free trade area, but on the other hand, we see some difficulties, some trade difficulties. EU is criticizing Ukraine for a ban on wood exports, whereas Ukraine can be facing some you know, anti-dumping measures in the steel sector. How you com- How would you comment uh, these trade relations? First of all, it is true that the association agreement, especially its uh, trade part, the so-called DCFTA free trade uh, agreement, uh, start to deliver, start to bring the first results. And uh, one of the reasons also was the Russian self-imposed uh, ban on imports of Uk- also Ukrainian products. So these producers had to find new markets and they had to reorient uh, their their trade policy. And that happened. And here uh, the EU was uh, very supportive and we are only happy that the mutual trade is growing so that the organic ties between our, let's say, importers and Ukraine exporters, between our business people, between our, uh, our business communities are growing. And this is something, it's a natural force that is bringing Ukraine into the integrated European market. And what you mentioned there, the wood ban and few other problems like the law by Ukrainian, uh, these are 
not uh, trade, not first of all, they are not uh, trade-related issues because our major concern is that uh, these uh, initiatives or these proposals are violating the principles of the free trade. And that's something that Ukraine agreed not to do. We agreed that we, neither of us would introduce some measures, would introduce some new legislation that would uh, contradict the, 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 the spirit of this agreement. And the spirit of the agreement is to have more and more free trade. So in the situation when Ukraine is imposing a, a ban on certain products that are exported not only to the EU but also to other countries, that's uh, something that denies this principle of the free trade. That uh, actually Ukraine is doing something that promised not to do. This is our major concern. We are not uh, talking about individual commodities. We are not talking about its volumes. Uh, we've stressed it many times that we do understand the uh, fears and concerns of Ukrainian authorities about the wood exports and we said that we are ready to share our experience in this area so that these uh, natural resources like forest would be protected uh, and would be managed as an industry in the same way as it is in the EU. And many small EU member states like Austria, Finland, Czech Republic, they are the largest exporters of wood within the EU. But their forests are not disappearing. So it's the matter of the management of these industries. So we are not uh, looking at this issue from the trade perspective, but rather from the perspective of principles and also from the way of the uh, management system or management methods, how these industries uh, could be uh, managed. One of the major arguments of Russian propaganda and, you know, those populists, Ukrainian populists who are taking these arguments is that this free trade area is turning Ukraine into kind of a raw material exporting country. And it is benefiting the raw material sectors like agricultural sectors, steel, uh, sunflower oil, etc. What would you respond to that? That uh, their thinking is based on a completely wrong, uh, let's say, assumption. It's a very, unfortunately, old Soviet thinking, uh, which I call a zero-sum game. While what we are offering to Ukraine is a model which is based on the win-win situation. Uh, we will do free trade, and according to theories of free trade, uh, the resources are, are always the best used there where the best conditions are. So if in some areas, uh, for example, Ukraine is not competitive, then of course uh, it's easier and it's cheaper to import these products from Ukraine. But I must say that there are not so many commodities that would be cheaper outside of Ukraine. So here I don't see any worries that uh, Ukraine would be turned into a kind of a, uh, a, a country with, uh, which would only provide the raw materials. Why? Because it's, it's cheaper and, of course, also more efficient to process them closer to the source of these commodities. So we have, again, perfect concrete examples like Ukrainian tomatoes. They are being processed here in Ukraine into products like tomato pasta, tomato ketchups. The same with uh, sunflower seeds. Yes, Ukraine is one of the largest world exporters of oil, sunflower oil seeds. But at the same time, Ukraine has already become uh, an exporter uh, or importer, no, importer number one to the EU when it comes to the sunflower oil. 
So, and there, there is a higher added value in processed goods. So the country and the business, concrete companies make more money, they make a bigger profit when they based their processing, let's say, facilities here in Ukraine, closer to the source of these commodities. And of course, this is going to happen because the business doesn't think today in categories of national uh, boundaries, right? So it's easier for an Austrian, French, uh, Czech uh, farmer or an investor to invest money in Ukraine, have the processing facilities here, provide the jobs to local people to pay taxes here in Ukraine, and then export these products back to the EU and and make a bigger profit because of the difference of the margins. When when you travel in Ukraine, you travel a lot in Ukrainian regions, what inspires you and what uh, frustrates you? What inspires me are, it might sound like a phrase, uh, the people do inspire me because, again, here in this uh, in this regard, I have seen, I have witnessed a major change from the mentality when people believed, like they don't have any influence on what is happening around them to the mentality of active citizens. When people start to be active, when they start to realize that the changes will not be brought to them by somebody or by state or by somebody else, the donors, they are quite aware that they have to, that they are the agents of the change. So the people have impressed me most of all. And what is, uh, let's say, the least impressive, I think uh, it's the state of infrastructure in Ukraine. Uh, it's the state of the uh, economic uh, uh, welfare and well-being of people, especially in the rural areas, uh, where you see uh, pictures like uh, from you know the 19th century. But again, the people who live there, they are quite uh, content with their lives. They are quite, uh, they look quite happy. But uh, they would deserve, I would say, a better living conditions, better infrastructure, uh, better choice of uh, other options, uh, so they won't just be tied up uh, to their places where they live. Uh, because some of them do not even think about moving somewhere else because you know they're. Uh, world is limited to to their own place, and they don't see anything else uh, apart from it. So that's a kind of a, a paradoxical situation to see. For example, these people in the rural areas, which look like uh, the villages in nineteenth century, somewhere in central or western Europe. Apart from the people, from the citizens, do you see do you see some structural changes? For example, decentralization reform, which EU supports as well. Do you think it is kind of able to bring very tangible results because it brings money and uh, powers to the local communities? This is exactly the reform that I was that I haven't mentioned as one of the most important ones, but I would like to correct now now, now myself. Indeed, decentralization is a reform and it is a process which is freeing up uh, these resources, human resources, which is freeing up uh, the creativity of people uh, that provides the active uh, citizens at the local level, at the lowest level, with opportunities to shape their lives, to improve their lives. Um, and uh, it's also 
quite uh, important that uh, they are given also the respective financial resources. And again, those who are more active, who have uh, better ideas, they know how to spend that money. So then there is a kind of a important work done not only for them, but also for their uh, communities they live in. Their neighbors do see it, then they start to appreciate it. And in that way, a kind of also the mental change is being supported also in the heads of those who are le less active. Uh, when you have on one side uh, active communities and on the other hand the neighboring communities where things are not changing, then the people do see the difference. Those who are living in these developing communities with uh, progressive, let's say, local leaders, they start to appreciate that. Those who live in the less developed uh, places or neighboring regions or communities, then they are starting to press for such a change. And in that way, this process, uh, bottom-up process, will definitely help to shape Ukraine uh, in, towards a modern state, towards a kind of a modern country with active citizens. So this is a very important reform that is giving people all possible, well, maybe not all, but many possible uh, resources and opportunities to have a say in their lives. And that's something that people do appreciate. It's very much also linked to the concept of this revolution of dignity. The, the dignity here is the key word. Maybe my last question, uh, we are talking about association agreement. We are in the first years of its implementation. Not everything is smooth, but the uh, the process of implementing the agreement is going on. Do you think we should think about uh, what would what will come next in EU-Ukraine relations? Maybe some kind of upgrading our relations, uh, thinking about some sectors we should more deeply integrate. It is never, uh, let's say, bad to think what should or what could come next. But the priority should be paid to what you are supposed to do right now. So the implementation of the association agreement is the priority number one, which largely predetermines also that future development. Uh, you can be implementing this agreement within, let's say, a couple of years, or you could also be struggling with its implementation for next decades. So that would definitely have a direct influence on what the EU will also be ready to kind of discuss with Ukraine. This will also be something that would give Ukraine good or bad arguments uh, to request more. It is something like uh, the educational process. When you start going to a primary school, it is good to think what you would do afterwards, whether you will go to high school or you would like to study at the university. But first you have to finish uh, and graduate from the primary school. School. And then uh, also depending on your success in that primary school, your future prospects will be predefined. Let's hope that uh, we will be successful in the primary school and that primary school will not be the end of our education. So thank you so much. This was David Stulik from uh, Delegation of the European Union to Ukraine, diplomatic representation of the European Union. He's press and information officer. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian journalist from Internews Ukraine, and this was Ukraine World Podcast. Thank you for listening to us. Mm -hmm.